nothing tastes as good as a cup of the hanging tea. Ah. The views and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entity or organizations. You are listening to the podcast, Tea and Talk, presented to inform, educate, inspire, and encourage meaningful conversations on Bahamian arts and culture. My name is Robert Bain, dancer, teacher, choreographer, and someone who believes in the preservation of all things Bahamian. I am sitting down with persons of like mind to discuss the Bahamian perspective on the arts and the Bahamian way. Now, let's welcome our guest. Good Sunday evening, Bahamas. This is Robert Bain, and I am back with another podcast. And today, Sunday, a beautiful day, very hot day in the Bahamas, actually. Uh, I don't know what the temperatures are there, but it's hot. It's really hot. Today, I am privileged to have in my presence Nana Safohini Jean-Claude II, um, other known as Christopher E. Davies, Davis, sorry, um, who wrote an amazing book, uh, a book that I think should be part of everybody's library, a book that the world should read. I am just delighted to have him here today. But before we get started, you know, I always start off by explaining why this podcast exists. It exists, it's a space for the artists, the educators, to come and express themselves. And hopefully at the end of this podcast, or any podcast that we have, you'll be much smarter. Um, But today, what we're having um, for our tea is uh, a little soursop. You know, we got plenty of soursop trees in the Bahamas. Um, they're kind of difficult to grow, but once you get one, man, it's a, <coughs> it's a, it's a good thing to have. So we are having today soursop. And so soursop tea, also known as grave, gravola, has been used for, for centuries as a natural remedy with powerful health benefit. mm-hmm. Fe- uh, sorry, benefits. Medical studies have confirmed the benefits of sarsop tea in the treatment of several conditions, including diabetes, high blood pressure, anxiety, and the um, the ability to help lower cholesterol. It's an amazing tea. I see why everybody's after it, eh? Well, Nana Safohini Jonqua II, welcome to Tea and Talk. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Yes, but I've been looking forward to the day. I've been looking forward to the day. After speaking with Angelique the other day, I was like, I was Johnson to have you come in here and sit down <laughs> and talk with me because you wrote, like I said uh, uh, earlier, you wrote an amazing book. And um, like I said, you need to have this book in your presence. I, um, but before we get started with the, with the real matter of this book, the question I like to ask my guests, this being the 50th year of Bahamian independence, where have we come in 50 years? <laughs> well, that's a difficult question, and I guess it uh, would definitely perspe- uh, depend on one's perspective as well, right? 
but to speak from the perspective that I typically speak from, which is that of the African diaspora in the Bahamas. When you look at the areas that we live in, many of us are you know, still concentrated in areas that we have always been for 200, even in some cases 300 years in the Bahamas. And of course, this is directly linked to our history. So in some senses, a lot has not changed, you know, and um, we get into some of that in the book um, as well. You know, in speaking about um, the history of the African diaspora in the Bahamas, black Bahamian history, to put it uh, simply, um, we have to remember that our history does not begin with slavery, right? Um, it begins actually in Africa, in all of those great African kingdoms. That is actually a part of Bahamian history. Okay. And then those of us that were brought over here, you know, that represents that as well there. Um, but in terms of the 50 years of independence, well, I think that I speak for many when, um, from any walk of life in the Bahamas, when we say that we know that we are not fully independent, you know, we are, uh, to speak frankly and bluntly, particularly from a Pan-African perspective, you know, the majority of our leaders in our modern history that led us to independence, they all have sir or dame in front of their names, Right. Um, and so that means that they have accepted knighthoods, which means that you were a soldier of the British Empire, the same British Empire that enslaved you, you know? Interesting. Right. And so your surname is Bane, mine is Davis. Yours is Scottish, I believe, if I'm correct. Yes. And mine is Welsh, you know? And you surely don't look like a Scot to me. <laughs> and I know I don't look like a Welsh man to you, you know? Yeah. Um, we don't sound like it, you know? We don't look like it, and we would proclaim we not. We are... African Bahamians, right? Uh, and so in many incidences, this reality, uh, you know, a lot of people view independence and in these things as an event when in actuality it's a process, you know? And that independence that happened in 1973 is a process um, to gain true, to call it what it is, African autonomy, because that's what we're talking about. It's a reason it's called majority rule. What made us that majority? Our African ancestry. That's what made us that majority. Okay. Nothing else. You know, and so, but for some reason, of course, in the Bahamas, um, we've been conditioned uh, to lack appreciation or even acknowledgement of our African heritage, right? Um, and nowhere is that seen more, um, in my opinion, in some of the ways that Junkanoo has been celebrated some of the stories behind origins of Junkanoo, right. which always seem to twist around, uh, giving all praises uh, to the British. And in the Bahamas, uh, despite going to our 50th jubilee, um, we still suffer from what I call in my book Anglophilia, okay. the irrational love of all things English. And that love is uh, irrational. Yeah. Anglophilia. I learned mm -hmm. that word just recently. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. you know the yeah. concept. Yes, right. yes absolutely. Exactly. I thought it was... Quite an interesting word. Right. Um, so, um, Christopher, can I call you Christopher? Yeah, it's no, no problem. Yes, okay. Yeah. Um, tell me how this process began, this beautiful book, which is called The Black Rinse. And you need to go, like I said, I, I'm saying it for the third time, you need to purchase the book. Uh, it was, to me, I opened it and immediately I felt something. Um, something that I needed to know, uh, knowledge that I needed to have. And like I say, with each podcast, you should leave here more smarter than you was when you came here. So hopefully at the end of this podcast, I'll be smarter than I was when I sat down here a couple of minutes ago. 
and you listeners will be much smarter than you were when you click on Spotify or Apple um, Podcasts. All right? Christopher, how did, how did, how you were, what inspired you to actually write this book? Well, there were several things that inspired me. Um, one of the inspirations actually came uh, from my father when I was uh, young, years ago, um, in my late teens, early 20s, and I pretty much was getting very much more interested in the history, into African affairs globally as it related to the Bahamas, and I was always trying to bring things closer to home. And it was like nothing was there. And I just asked one day, how come nobody ever wrote or documented like black history or focused on black history in the Bahamas? And he just looked at me and sucked my teeth and said, well, how come you don't do it? <laughs> so that was a part of it. And then also just living here, experiencing it, as I gained exposure and started to hang on the words of our great scholars like Dr. John Henry Clark, Sheikh Anta Diop, and others, it was always about everywhere else and no mentioning of the Bahamas. And I was like, so what, we didn't do nothing? Like, is it true that we were just a bunch of passive Negroes who loved our slave master? And as they taught us, mm-hmm. it was slavery easier in the Bahamas? You know, all of these are things I know will be familiar sentiments to your audience. Were these absentee owners really benevolent planters who let us do what we wanted? All of these questions, you know, wow. um, and that's what made me, led me to it. And then I began to work at the Antiquities Monuments Museum Corporation. I, I'm there as a research assistant. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been there for eight years now. And that was when things I was able to start to bring things closer to home. And I just almost like just became obsessed with researching the African aspect, looking at other stories and reading between the lines to get the African story out of it. And what I began to realize, and it, started, it was... You know, my wife, who was on my side as I was doing a lot of this research, she would tell you some days, tears would just start rolling down my face, and she'd be like, oh, you... F-? And it got to the point over the two and a half years of me writing this, where she's like, oh, you find something else, and I just would, like, shake my head in disbelief <laughs> and be like, oh, yeah, you know? That's interesting. Yeah. But how... Um, so our history, our present history, how, in your mind, um, based on your research... Mm-hmm. How much of the history that we are told now, and you might have said something about this already, but how much of it um, is missing? I would say at least half of it. Half of it. And in the sense of, well, we only get the story of the hunter, when in reality the majority of us are descended from those who were the hunted, if you get where I'm coming from. Right. And so the African story, from a global level, Dr. John Henry Clark said... The missing pages of world history are the overlooked and unacknowledged pages of African history. And it's very similar here in the Bahamas, you know. Working at Pompey Museum, uh, I'm on the front lines of this, so I get Bahamians, tourists, everyone's opinions and outlooks on these things, you know. And every Bahamian that comes there, particularly black Bahamians, say, oh, well, you know, they don't teach us our real history. Mm-hmm. It's almost like this is a common saying, oh, well, we know they only teach us about Columbus and the Loyalists and Queen Victoria and all of these things. So I would say much of it, and as a matter of fact, if we was to be equitable in this analysis, I would say 95% of the history is missing because we are a 95% African nation. Yeah, not 85, as some people uh, believe, you know. We're more 95% African, yeah, descended, yeah. Um, 
tell us about the relationship. Um, I know that you uh, you are a a um, member of the Hunter tribe. Right. Yeah. What are the similarities of the? Well, I'm not just a, a member. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm actually the South Indian. We can get into that another time. But yeah. when we arrived, when I first arrived, I arrived at my wife, uh, Queen Mother Tamara Davis, okay. a.k.a. Mrs. John Canoe II, right? Okay. And um, we arrived in this place called Princess Town, which was the village where our hero John Canoe was from. Um, like 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, unannounced, taking a big risk, um, you know, and... Um, the next day when we got into the research and learning who the person was, that was amazing. But what was far more amazing was the similarities I saw. And then I reached out to Angelique, reached out to Dr. Michael Pateman, of course, um, Robin Lightborn, Ross Copper, all of these people who have a stake in the game and culture and John Canoe and history as well, you know. And um, when we went there, just to give some examples, you know, um, the way they suck their teeth mm. is similar to the way that we do. Uh, their most powerful medicinal herb. I mean, I'll let you guess. What is the Bahamas' most powerful medicinal herb? Sorcery. I had a view on that one. All right. And Sorcery <laughs> is their most powerful medicinal herb to the point where they have far more uses for it than we do. So it shows you how some of that knowledge, though we brought everything with us, as Queen Mother Angelique loves to say, there is some stuff that was lost. So the practice of Bush medicine was brought. Mm-hmm. But, of course, certain some of the intricacies of what sorcery was actually used for. Right. And mind, they're using sorcery for spiritual protection and all these things. And we're just using it for, you know, medicine and as a tea. And they're using it in poultices. They're putting it in jewelry, all these different things. Amazing. Oh, yeah, you know. Um, so the similarities. And then, of course, you see it in people's faces, um, particularly on the family islands like Cat Island and, um, even a Lutheran stuff, and you, I just saw so many people so many times. Um, I did an interview with a reporter, and this woman was a splitting image of my mother-in-law. To the point, you know, you look like someone when you show them a picture, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the person is like, "Wow, yeah, that really does look like me." Yeah, right? yes, yes, you know. And when I say splitting image, splitting image of my mother-in-law, and this woman was interviewing me, and I got distracted in the interview, and I literally had to like. Divert from the human mind. Sorry, man, but you really, really, really look like my mother-in-law. I got to show you this picture. And so it was just so much with the Hanta people in, um, specifically, which is the group and the tribe where John Kwa was from, but all throughout Africa and Ghana in general. What you will see is just familiarity, you know. Um, in Ghana and all over West Africa, they have a culture that we still do here where we like to have these like doughy breads that we eat with soup. Mm-hmm. So you eat either Johnny cake, potato bread, or mm-hmm. even banana bread. But it's always like a, it ain't like a fully cooked bread. It's more like a dough, right? right? And then we dip that in our soup. Right. And it's very similar to the banku and fufu, which are these like cassava-based doughs. And, and they have it in the soup, okay, like soaking in the soup, and they, and they eat it with their hands, you know. And, um, it's, and one of the dishes is called light soup. And it's yes. quite similar to stew the way fish. we do stew fish, yes. stew conk, right? And you pro- and it's very popular as well. So a lot of people know what light soup is, what palm oil soup is. Mm-hmm. And when you look at it, you could see the, the inspiration in many of the dishes that we have, not even just in the Bahamas, but throughout the Caribbean. But with the Hanta people, there's this very close affinity. And the part that will really 
blow most Bahamians away is when you see the Kundam and the Ancos Festival. So the Kundam is a bigger, bigger festival, and the Ancos is just one part, one expression of the Kundam. Right. And Ancos is what is the most similar to our modern Junkanoo Parade. Okay. Where they have these frilled, very colorful costumes. French, okay. sorry. Mm-hmm. Very colorful costumes. It's crazy how even though we have a 300-year gap, we still follow like the same color patterns. So the color patterns are very, very similar. The way they dance is similar. Beating the drum, walking down the road. About 100 years ago, they started putting brass in it. About 100 years ago, we started putting yeah, brass yes, in ours, yes, right? Yes, so yes. there's so many similarities. And the the part that um, was the most powerful that we also get into a little bit in the book, and this is the part that was the most moving for us, especially for the real Junkanoos. Um, and this was quite prevalent in Hunter. So whenever they have like a ceremony, parades, anything, they have the presence of cowbells. Mm-hmm. So cowbells are a bit common throughout Africa and the Khan people, but in the Hunter they were particularly prevalent. But in the Hunter region, they have like the same tapered triangular cowbells that we do, mm-hmm. hold them on, at the bottom, and they ring them the same way, but just a lot slower. And so when we showed them videos of our bellas in our John Canoe Parade, you know, the guys, them, they was being all mystical and stuff, mm-hmm. but they was just kind of smiling, um, you know, and because, of course, our bellas, you know, the bellas are considered, they some of the most highly respected people in John Canoe because of the, how strenuous their job is, you know. Now, the reason they use the bell pretty much is to, you know, summon the ancestors, welcome, summon the right energies for whatever it may be they do, and they're doing it for a wedding, celebrating that. But it's all about bringing down these this energy. But us, we see and we ringing this bell violently and like almost desperately. And their theory was that we ring this bell like this because we were trying to get either our ancestors or maybe even the spirit of John Canoe himself to come and rescue us from slavery. You know what's so interesting? I, I, you saying this, I, when my book uh, should be out by April of this year, in my book I mentioned the word, I used the word a couple of times, blood memories. All right? I used the word blood memories because I believe that Bahamians do a lot of stuff that they are unaware of. And, uh, and sometimes, you know, sometimes... <coughs> When you are, if you ever go to a Junkanoo practice, and, and just for the minute when the drummers are all lined up and they're practicing and the drum rolls over, and after a minute, uh, a couple of minutes after, everybody has gotten all hot, mm-hmm. uh, you can almost see, or it almost look like those musicians, those Junkanoo musicians could be a little bit possessed, <laughs> yeah. not understanding, right? right? Mm-hmm. Because I feel that, that <clears throat> the... the, the the, the drums, and um, uh, this is also mentioned in my book as well, that the drums, they, they, is the, for me, it's, the, it's a discourse because yeah. I think the music is structured in such a way, in a polyrhythmic way, where if you really listen to it, there's a conversation that, that's happening. I think that we do a lot of things here in this country Mm-hmm. That we don't, we're not aware of, especially that people of of African origin that we're not aware of, and I think it just stayed with us mm-hmm. over, over, over. I mean, over the span of our lifetime, right? You know, uh, another question I had asked you earlier when before we started, we we were talking about the different dances and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. could you tell us about some of the the dances that? Well, I was talking about uh, my brother Sam Akpo, who was this like dance extraordinaire and also 
one of the right-hand men f- with our NGO, Sankofa Flamingo, when we do tours and all of that. Now, we were, um, I was showing him some of our traditional Bahamian dances. Mm-hmm. So first of all, um, it was most evident for me, even though I'm no dance expert or anything like that, but what I saw most evident were similarities in the way that women danced. And so when you look at the Kundam Festival, they had different sections where it was just women in groups dancing. Mm-hmm. And some of the same moves that you see, Valley Boys, Saxons, Roots, um, Genesis, of course, can't forget them, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. dancing ladies, you mm-hmm. understand? Now, on a deeper level, we have, you know, of course, Rake and Scrape, mm-hmm. right? And we have all of these different toe-heel dances. So that toe-heel dancing is distinctly African. And when you see the Kundam Festival, they have these people who wear like the the bells and the chimes on their ankles. Mm-hmm. And they do these same toe heel movements that we do, not only just in uh rake and scrape, you know, toe heel dancing, you even see it like in mainstream music, you know. Mm-hmm. And so even like in the Iron Coast Festival, you see like these like toe heel style dances that everybody doing like in unison. And it's just too much familiarity. And then even ones where we um, uh, give a lot of credit to, of course, any European influence, so like the quadrille um, dancing, for example, which is, of course, it's the four dance and all of that. But, of course, we know that it has an African flavor mm-hmm. in the way that we do it. And so you have various different styles of man dancing with woman style dancing that may appear to be European at first glance, but it appears to have also have a credible African influence that was previously unacknowledged, you know. And that exactly, I love that terminology. I can start using it, but when I use it, I can make sure, okay, you created blood memory, you know. Yes. And that's extremely powerful. And I think that John Canoe, maybe even on a global scale, may be one of the best examples of that because mm-hmm. we didn't know who this guy was. And it's so, so for example, how you said that the drumming was so unique and it almost seemed like it don't match the music, but then it does. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm certain now that, so the tom-tom comes from the tom-tom of Senegal. The gombe, we believe, comes from the djembe drum of Mali. So this was research done by people like um, the great, uh, I call him Baba Moxie. You know, we know we talk about right there, right, you know. Mr. Moxie right there and his um, homestead right there off of Blue Hill Road. Yeah, Ed Moxie. Ed Moxie Park, Mm -hmm. right. You know, so... But of course, we have all of this other influence, but the rhythm and the essence of the drum comes from the Sappho drum, mm. the warrior drum, okay. the talking drum. When you even hear the actual drum patterns that have been preserved throughout the Akan cultures in Ghana, mm. when they prepare and to go to war, would they play for the general? Quite similar to our <laughs> Chankanu rhythm right, and beat. Right, yeah. And these are talking drums that send specific messages. And when it comes to drumming, so when they do their condom drumming, so they ain't like here. Ours is quite impressive. But their condom drummers, they drumming literally from morning to night. <laughs> they starting off in their nice clothes. And, right. by, and I talking about 16 hours, you know, I'm not even exaggerating. Wow. 16 hours straight, these man them playing drumming things. So they're saying no. And then you talk about that essence of possession. It all depends on your perspective and your belief, of course, but mm-hmm. at the end of the day, I don't think anybody could deny this connection that we had to this, you know, it's a reason why um, we don't play John Canoe, you know, he's Rush, rush. <laughs> you understand, yeah. Yeah. Um, and even, uh, it's so deep in 
and deeply embedded in us and in our subconscious. Even when you look at one of the oldest uh, groups, even though I shouldn't be bigging them up because I was a valley boy, but (laughs) (laughs) But you get the Saxons, right? And, you know, the Saxons have this kind of relationship with another group. I get in two different stories. I don't know if the Vikings became the Saxons or if the Saxons come break off the Vikings and now the Vikings no, ain't the Vi- around no the more. The came out of the, the Vikings and just create, create the Saxons. Okay, and then I, the Vikings kind I, of... I'll have Vola come in and explain. Thank you very much, yeah, Eric. Yeah, 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 one of yeah. these days. And I was actually Vola, who I, I had a conversation with him some months ago. Yeah. And he was explaining to me about the origin of it. And he was just like, man... We know I think it was they, came out, they came out of also the, the right. punch bowl, uh, someplace. Uh, right, he was selling me some, yeah, but yeah. from my anthropological hat on, right, I look at it from a different point. So now, when you look at like Jamaica, North Carolina, you have this character named Pitchy Pachi or John Coon, is right. Yeah. This is a guy with the horns, typically, and he is be there. And this horned figure represents, is one of the representations of the. Safahini, mm-hmm. you understand? Okay. So it's almost like in our subconscious, where even though the knowledge of Africa has been lost, subconsciously we just like, man, them like full of them. I don't even know if they know, you know, but it was like, all we know is, we know is a horn warrior. Mm-hmm. Warriors with horns, we know that. And not in our subconscious, that's in our... It's there. It's, right, yeah. it's there, right. So, but we only know about Vikings. Right. And, and Saxons, those are the two like Europe ones from Europe who are stereotypically have horns with the helmet and the warriors. Yes. But it was disassociated with the Akan and the Hanta people for very obvious reasons. Just went in tandem with the proverbial stripping of African identity that came in any culture, Jamaica, Bahamas, Haiti, Cuba, the United States, Canada. You know, it, it, it was part and parcel of being, especially in a British colony. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the Bahamas actually has a closer and more direct connection to Africa, where we have mm-hmm. places like Congo Town, Fox Hill, South Andres, yes. Nango Town, that's Nigeria people. Mm-hmm. You know, you have people like uh, the, um, Ankusara, Cleveland Indians the third, yeah. who come, they get traced to the ship. Yorubas. All right, then, yeah. you know, you get man them like Vivian Wiley, descended from Kujo Wiley, um, from the Clifton Plantation. You know, we have these ah. people living, walking, breathing around here. So we know this. Yet, how is it that in a place like Cuba or in a place like Haiti, even Jamaica or Trinidad, mm-hmm. who have a much larger population, where that influx of liberated Africans didn't have the same impact that it have in the Bahamas, how is it that African religion is stronger in those places and more accepted in those places Yet African religion is illegal in the Bahamas. Wow. You, um, <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're talking about drumming. Um, Gombe, uh, Gombe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I learned some time ago that Gombe actually is actually a word. Um, it's a Bantu word. Right. Mm-hmm. That actually means drum. Yeah. We have a, we have a quiet... Without knowing, we walk around, <laughs> uh, we say things, we do things that, 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 that still lingers mm-hmm. uh, in us, uh, emotionally unaware of it. Uh, that's just plant, that seed has been planted a long time ago. Oh, yeah. Uh, we eat food. <laughs> we have a s- certain type of taste, how we like uh, stuff. Um, and I think, <coughs> I think it all extends from the motherland. Oh, yeah. But we're not, we are unaware 
right. we're unaware. And so you're going to bring some awareness to all of this. Join me for a continuation of this discussion with Christopher Davis. You're listening to Tea and Talk. The views and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entity or organizations.